Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike, and today we're going to talk about the overall structure of the Book of Mormon. Uh, this is stuff that you're probably not going to teach in a lesson, but this is information that I think is really a, important to understanding the text. I think every teacher should know more than what they teach. And so when you're teaching the Book of Mormon, you really want to cover you know, how it's centered on Christ and the principles that it teaches and how it brings us to him and how we can be better people. But I also think the Book of Mormon gives tons of evidence as to who it is and, or excuse me, what it is and its authenticity. And so today we're going to talk about uh, the page in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon. There's a page called A Brief Explanation about the Book of Mormon. And it says that the Book of Mormon is a sacred record of peoples in ancient America and was engraved upon sheets of metal. Now, if you've been a member of your church your whole life, you already know all this stuff. And so this is a good review. And yet the things I'm going to talk about, even to, to people that have been members their whole lives, some of this stuff may be new information to a lot of you. It may be something that I think you will find very interesting. If you're a brand new member of the church, hopefully I explain things well enough that it makes sense. And then as we go through this, you'll see uh, the Book of Mormon in greater detail. And so the first thing I want to talk about here is who was Mormon? Why is it called the Book of Mormon? Like, why is it not called the Book of Nephi? Or why is it not called another testament of Jesus without the title of the Book of Mormon? That's important. And so we read about him towards the, the end of the text. We have this writing called the Book of Mormon. We read in the Book of Mormon, chapter 1, uh, that there's this young boy na- uh, named Mormon, and he's 10 years old, and a guy by the name of Amron comes up to him. It says, Amron hit up the records unto the Lord, and he came unto me, I being about 10 years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, quick to observe. And so this is where we read that Mormon is given the important job of taking all the history of his people from all the way back from Lehi and Nephi, 600 BC. And Mormon right here is around 322 AD. So about 900 plus years have transpired. And Mormon is to take all their records and compose a document that will be sealed up into the Lord to be brought forth later to testify of Jesus Christ. So Mormon is the abridger of the text. And what what I mean by an abridgment or an abridger is one who takes multiple records, redacts them, shortens them, puts them into a cohesive narrative that makes sense, and then presents it to the people. Now, the Bible has an editor like this, but we don't know who it is. In scholarship, uh, some say or propose that perhaps Jeremiah was the person who put together the history and all these different accounts of the Bible, what we call today the Old Testament, or in scholarship they call it the Tanakh, that perhaps it was Jeremiah, or perhaps it was Ezra the scribe that performed this role, or maybe it was even Baruch, one of the associates of Jeremiah. We just don't know, but we know this happened. And this is important to understand what Scripture is. Scripture is this it's this dance, it's this symbiotic relationship between God and man, and their texts that are produced by people. These prophets are producing texts, but it's not necessarily just God speaking through them. In other words, 
their agency plays a role in this. And so Mormon plays a really important role in bringing forth the Book of Mormon. And yet throughout the narrative, as we read his abridgment, he is inspired of God. And so I like to talk about Scripture being both gold and clay. It's gold in that it's from heaven, but it's clay as it comes from the earth or as it comes from man. And so that's a really important distinction to make to understand Scripture. Many people think that all of Scripture is this 100% infallible document, and it's all been written by the finger of God. And that's not what Mormon shows us in the Book of Mormon. He shows us that he's a young man, he's quick to observe, and he's given the, the chore to put this together. Mormon being quick to observe to me, means that Mormon understood language. In 322 AD, the language that Mormon and his people are using is not going to be the same type of language that Nephi and his people spoke 900 years earlier. For example, if you were to get in a time machine and go back 920 some odd years and listen to English speakers, I guarantee you would not be hearing the English that we speak today. It would be roughly... 1100 AD. Now, this is important. Brian Stubbs has written some great work on this in his book, Changes in Language from Nephi Till Now. And he he does this as well as Michael Drought, another scholar, not LDS, but he, he's an English scholar on the history of the English language. And Michael Drought says that in 1066 AD, the French Normans come in, they conquer England, and they inject into the English language many words And the entire vocabulary of English changes over the course of the next couple hundred years so that by 1300 or by 1350 AD, English has radically been transformed. And only 15% of the original English words before the conquest remained after about 1300 AD. And so if you've ever studied languages and you've studied French, you see that there are many French words in the English language, and that's because languages morph and they adapt. And if you're a little bit older and you've raised teenagers, you know that words like cool and sick and savage and all kinds of different words that teenagers use today, these these words are constantly changing. And so this is what Brian Stubbs writes. He says that the interaction between Amaron and Mormon is telling. He says, Mormon relates, I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amaron said, I perceive you're a sober child and quick to observe. Sober child likely means studious, conscientious responsible, as opposed to, I just want to have fun, like most 10-year-olds. Quick to observe likely means, I can see you're a fast learner, our best student, and the best hope to take a thousand years of records in different languages and different stages of development of those languages and summarize thousands of pages into a few hundred. So that when you're 24 and you have more years of setting up on this learning of your people, well beyond your present 10-year-old stage, you'll get the records and you'll do your best. And good luck, you're going to need it. And Brian Stubb spends the rest of his book talking about how the language changed and how Udo Aztecan, the language that's the parent language of multiple languages in North and South America, is littered with Egyptian and Hebrew technical terms, and that Hebrew and Egyptian have proliferated throughout North and South America. And his contention is, is that this colony from 600 BC, these people, um, Nephi and his family that come to the Americas, as they're injected into the indigenous population, there's a lot of people here, um, that their language proliferates and spreads, but that it's also influencing others, but that their language, the language of the indigenous people of the Americas, is influencing 
the Nephite nation. And so it goes back and forth like the French as it influenced English in 1066. And so that the language has changed. So by the time Mormon comes around, he has all these records and they're in languages that probably weren't in use. Like I said, it's been 900 years. So this young man who's quick to observe is given the task by the Lord to abridge the document. Tons and tons of stuff, tons of records. And he's to put this together into what we today call the Book of Mormon. So let's start with the beginning of the Book of Mormon, at least the beginning as we read it in 1 Nephi. Ether comes way earlier, but the text of Ether is put in later. So we'll start with 1 Nephi. It begins with the record of Nephi in 600 BC, and this is a lineage document. It's a lineage history, a record of the prophets. 586, we'll see the destruction of the Jerusalem temple, and Bryce and I will talk later about the political and religious upheavals during this time period that influenced Nephi and Lehi's work. I will say that in Nephi's day, there really wasn't a distinction between politics and religion. It was all religion. Everything was religion. And so Nephi stands against this tide of the changes that were put in place in 600 BC. I I do want to say that the Bible is highly edited. William Deaver is a Bible scholar, and he has written some really good books on this subject. A couple of them is, What Did the Biblical Writers Know and When Did They Know It? And Who Were the Early Israelites and Where Did They Come From? And these are really good books if you want to understand the history of the Bible and the history of the people that wrote it. But his contention is this, and I totally believe him. He's not LDS, but he essentially says that the Bible has been highly edited and it shows the theology of the victors. Now, this is important if you're going to read the Book of Mormon because Lehi is going to be cast out by the people in power in 600 BC, which shows us that the Yahwehism, the belief in Yahweh, we're going to call him Jesus, but in the in the Old Testament, he would have been referred to as Yahweh. The belief in Yahweh had many different strains. There were many different ways to believe in Yahweh. And the people that believe in Yahweh in Lehi's day that reject him don't believe in Yahweh the way Lehi does. That's important. And we see this distinction in 1 Nephi 19 verse 10. 1 Nephi 19 verse 10 is a direct quote from the brass plates that Nephi has access to. And he takes these brass plates and he quotes this verse and it says this, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and the God of Jacob yieldeth himself according to the words of the angel as a man into the hands of wicked men to be lifted up according to the words of Zenic and to be crucified according to the words of Neum and to be buried in a sepulcher according to the words of Zenus, which he spake concerning the three days of darkness, which should be a sign given of his death unto those who should inhabit the isles of the sea, more especially given unto those who are of the house of Israel. And so in this verse, we read, first of all, that there's three prophets on the brass plates that Nephi is quoting, Zenic, Neum, and Zenus. These three prophets are not in the Old Testament that you and I have, but they were on the brass plates, which tells us a couple things. First, that it was edited. Second, we don't read anything like 1 Nephi 19 verse 10 in the Old Testament. This belief in a God that is to die and rise again, although it was prevalent in the ancient Near East under many different names. That's edited out of the Old Testament. And so I believe Lehi is rejected by his contemporaries because they reject this notion of a dying and rising God. And so at least from my reading of the Book of Mormon, 
there's many ways to believe in Yahweh, and Lehi's way is not the most popular. And so for this, he is rejected. And so they leave. Lehi and his family, their colony, leaves Jerusalem. When they leave, Nephi basically says that he's going to construct two sets of records. He doesn't use this term, but Jacob will, and the term is going to be large and small plates. This idea of large and small plates does not mean that they were in different sizes. Everyone that saw the plates that Joseph had said that they were the same size. So when we talk about large and small plates, essentially what we're saying is that the large plate record had more plates. There were more of them, but they were the same size as the small plates. And the small plates are going to be Nephi's spiritual record. And it's going to contain first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni. When you get to Omni 1 verse 30, the author says that the plates are full, meaning that there's no more room. And once they're full, they're done. And so the record is passed through Jacob's progeny until Amalekai, the last of his descendants to write on them, who then takes these small plates and gives them to King Benjamin and Zarahemla about 200 years after Nephi had given them to Jacob. So that's the provenance of the small plates. That's where they go. They go from Nephi's hands into Jacob and then to Enos, all the way down to Malachi, who then hands them to King Benjamin, and they're filled up. And that's Omni 1, verse 30. That tells us essentially that Nephi created plates that were blank and that once they're full, that they were filled. And that's the small plates. The large plates go from Nephi forward and they're the narrative of the kings. There are a lot more detail in there. There's more explanation given. Nephi is going to give the large plates to his successors and these men were given a throne name of Nephi. We read about this in Jacob 1 verse 11. So whatever the name of the king was, he took upon himself the name of Nephi. And so these are the people that are the custodians of the large plates. These plates remain with the Nephite kings until Mosiah 1. He receives them in Zarahemla, and there is no question of ending the record, simply because the scribe who wrote on them, when the scribe filled the last leaf of the book, then the head of government would simply authorize the creation of new plates and the continuation of their history. And so as I talked about this uh, with my wife earlier, she said that's kind of like a mother having two different journals of her family, one that is more historical and one that is more personal. And I really like that analogy. Um, that's kind of what's happening here with the small and large plates. The large plates are going to contain, once again, a lot of detail, records of the kings. I think that what's happening here is the king would have a scribe or a scribal school write down uh, the history and the events and the things that are happening. And so Mormon's going to have to take a lot of this stuff and edit that. Mormon's not going to edit or abridge anything from the small plates, which we'll see here in a minute. Okay, so what are the sources of the records? The small plate sources, essentially three things. The brass plates, which Nephi gets in the very beginning of the text, he he goes and gets those. Um, Lehi's dream is recorded by Nephi, and the first person authorial accounts. So Jacob writes in the first person, uh, Nephi writes in the first person, and so on. That's what the small plates are, and they're not edited. Now, what about the brass plates? What's on those? This is all coming out of 1 Nephi 5, so you'll read that, but this is what I think is going on. I think the the brass plates are a northern record. Israel and Judah are two kingdoms. Until Israel is taken over in 721 BC, 
And we see this in the archaeological record. In 721 BC, Assyria comes and conquers the north, and people move south to Judah. And so I think that Lehi's grandparents were in this migration. And in archaeology, we see that there's this massive increase in population in and around Jerusalem right about the time of the conquest. And so what we think happened is that there were northern scribes that bring their records down to the south, and that is what is on the brass plates. In other words, it's a northern record with northern prophets and northern views on theology and who Yahweh is and how he works. Now, that's in scholarship, but I think the scholarship really does lend credibility to the text of the Book of Mormon. But in 1 Nephi 5, verse 11, we read that it contains the writings of Moses, creation of the world, Adam and Eve, and a record of the Jews to the reign of Zedekiah, and a bunch of prophecies of the holy prophets. And so there's a bunch in there about Isaiah. There is Zenus, Zenic, Num. There's firsthand written accounts, apparently, writings or, or statements by Joseph, Joseph of Egypt, and also some of the stuff of Jeremiah and genealogy of Lehi's fathers. All of this, this is the scripture of Nephi's day, and that's why Lehi says you got to go get those. And so the brass plates are rich, and they're filled with stuff that isn't necessarily in your Old Testament. Some of it is, some of it isn't. And that is a big source of the small plates, because Nephi is going to quote that. And so once again, we've got that. We've got Lehi's dream is recorded by Nephi in first-person authorial accounts. That's the small plates. Okay, large plates. Well, we've got authors. It's likely that a scribe was authorized by the king who wrote a lot of what's on the large plates. Some of the other authors are going to be, you know, Alma the Younger. A lot of his stuff is probably direct quotations on the large plates, as well as Mormon and Moroni's words. There's some interchange there. And a lot of this stuff on the large plates is is holographic documents and things written by them. Also know that the Book of Lehi is on the large plates as well. Uh, letters. Mormon had access to a lot of letters that are on the large plates. So for example, Amron writes a letter in Alma 54. Captain Moroni in a couple chapters, Alma 54 and 60. Helaman writes a letter that's quoted in Alma 56 and 58. Pehoran in Alma 61 writes a letter as well as Gideonhi in 3 Nephi 3. And then Mormon in Moroni 8 and 9. So there's a lot of letters in the large plates. The brass plates is heavily quoted in the large plates, specifically as Abinadi is quoting them when he's talking to King Noah. You can read that in, in Mosiah. Once again, I mentioned the record of Lehi. That's on the large plates. There's another record called the record of Zenith, and that is a colony of Nephites that basically takes off, and they go into a land that is hostile territory and establish a kingship and a nation. And that's in Mosiah 9 through 22. That's got to be a whole separate document that's going to be put on the large plates. And I find it ironic that these Nephites go into this hostile territory and the land, they call it the land of Nephi. I believe that was what the scribes called it, what the Nephites called it. Certainly the Lamanites aren't going to call it that. And that's on the large plates as well. You also have the record of Alma. He's the priest of Noah. He's going to write down his history. That's going to be on the large plates. You've got Ammon and his brothers and their missionary journeys and all that stuff's going to be on the large plates. The record of Nephi, we read this in 3 Nephi that he keeps a record and Mormon's going to abridge this. You can read that in 3 Nephi 5, 9, and 10 where he says, I'm taking Nephi's documents and we're abridging this. Samuel Lamanite's prophecies, it's important by the Lord that that gets written down. Uh, the plates of ether are going to be abridged and put on the large plates, as well as the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. 
a big chunk of the Book of Mormon is sealed. Now, how much? It's kind of tough. You know, we really don't know. In 1878, David Whitmer, the last surviving of the three witnesses, was asked about it. Uh, the question was, did the angel turn all the leaves before you as you looked on them? And he said, no, not at all. Only that part of the book which was not sealed. And there was sealed appeared as solid to my view as wood. Responding to the question, how many of the plates were sealed? He said this, about half of the book was sealed. There's yet to be given a translation about Jared's people's doings and of Nephi and many other records and books, which all has to be done when the time comes. In 1881, 1885, and 1888, David Whitmer added the following comments. He said this, quote, about one third appeared to be loose in plates and the other solid, but with perceptible marks where the plates seem to be sealed. I'm going to put all this in the show notes. In essence, our witness, David Whitmer, doesn't give an exact account. This is kind of how history is. It's kind of messy. So in one account, he says, well, it's about half, about half of is sealed. And then in other times, he says, oh, it's about two thirds is sealed. And so, you know, like I said, we really don't know, but there was a big portion of the Book of Mormon that was sealed that Joseph Smith does not translate. That's all going to be considered part of the large plates. This stuff can be pretty technical. I'm going to post in the show notes uh, some graphs where you can kind of see the source material because I know sometimes in a podcast, it doesn't really come across well. Whenever I teach this stuff in a classroom, it really helps because I have graphs and I use a board. Um, If you're teaching gospel doctrine, you're probably not going to go here, but I think it's good as teachers of the gospel to know uh, the source material of the Book of Mormon. Also, I think this is important because it shows the highly complex nature of the text. I mean, if this was just something that is in Joseph Smith's head, if you get into the weeds on the complexity of the text, and trust me, I'm not even getting into it. This is just like kind of intro stuff. This stuff's highly complicated and highly complex. And so this is another point that I want to make is that this is the nature of Scripture. Prophets quote older prophets, and as they do, and as they recontextualize the words of older prophets, and as they give new meaning to the text, this, in essence, is also a way to define Scripture. So Mormon's going to do that. He's going to take older documents, and he's going to repackage them, and he's also going to give what I like to call Mormon's midrash, or Mormon's commentary. And as he does, he says things like, and thus we see, and he draws lessons from the text, and he points the reader where he wants them to go. Mormon is not just telling stories to tell them. He's trying to drive a narrative. He's trying to drive our minds and hearts to a point that he's trying to make. But in general, what he wants us to do is to believe in Christ and to hearken unto his commands and listen to the Spirit and grow in grace. And so Mormon's always doing this, and he's always trying to illustrate how people that don't, that reject the the words of wisdom— lose wisdom and they lose light and horrible things happen. And so he's very much in this tradition. Okay, so Mormon's going to finish his record. He's going to give it to his son, Moroni, and Moroni is going to add a few things. And then Moroni is going to come across a book called the Book of Ether. And so when Moroni gets the Book of Ether, he is going to see these plates. There are 24 gold plates that are on Ether's writings, this early Jaredite record. Mosiah is going to take these plates and translate them, and then Moroni is going to abridge them. So the early Jaredite record kind of goes through a series of redactions. There's a Jaredite king list in the first chapter. There's a bunch of records of the brother of Jared, and there's Jaredite royal history. All of this stuff is comprised on 24 plates that then Mosiah is going to translate 
and give it a new, because once it's translated, it kind of has new meaning. It has new life. And then Moroni is going to take it and abridge it. And he's going to put this in the what's going to be called the Book of Ether. But on this, he's also going to give commentary. Moroni is going to give what I call inspired midrash. So for example, he's going to talk about the abridgment in the first chapter. He's going to talk about sealed records coming to light in chapter four. He's going to give a discourse on secret combinations and also on faith in the 12th chapter. Secret combinations is chapter eight. So if you read the book of Ether as it stands on our Book of Mormon, it's been through several redactions. So once again, there's the record written by the Jaredites themselves. Then there's Mosiah's translation. And then there's Moroni's insertion with his commentary. And so once again, this is another illustration of what scripture is, and it's fun. But when you get into the book of Ether, I like to do this. I like to show how the book of Ether is actually a super reduced form of the Book of Mormon. You can take the lessons in the Book of Mormon, and then when you read the Book of Ether, you can see, oh my goodness, this is the Book of Mormon in concentrated form. And I think there's a reason. Uh, why Moroni puts it in there. And I think that is one good reason, that it's an illustration of the entire text of the Book of Mormon. So there you have it. Uh, Who was Mormon and who was Moroni? Uh, Mormon knew languages. He abridged tons of records. He put them on plates. Over and over again in the large plates, we see Mormon's fingerprints with things like, and thus we see. We also see places where Mormon says things and he messes up and he'll he'll say something and then he'll say, oh man, I didn't say that right. And instead of getting out an eraser, there's no whiteout or a backspace button as it were, a computer or an eraser. He's writing on metal. He comes up with a way to amend what he says. And I love this. To me, this shows the authenticity of the text that Mormon is a super busy guy and he's going through all this stuff, all these documents, and he's putting together the history and he's making mistakes like a normal person would. And so probably my favorite person on this that's really done the work on this is a a gentleman by the name of Ted D. Stoddard. And so I'll put this in the show notes. He calls it historicity implications of Mormon's whoopses in the Book of Mormon. And there's a ton of them. A lot of times Mormon says things like, or rather, Uh, because of this podcast and, and the timing thereof, I don't know how interesting it would be if we went through all of them, but I'll give you a couple to kind of whet your appetite. And if you're interested, you can check out uh, Mr. Stoddard's information here. Okay, so this one is Alma 2419. I really like this one. And this is Mormon's commentary on the bearing of the weapons of war. This is what he says. He says, Thus we see when the Lamanites were brought to believe and to know the truth, they were firm and would suffer even unto death rather than to commit sin. And thus we see that they buried their weapons of peace or they buried the weapons of war for peace. And I like that. There, you know, it's hard to think of really a, a weapon of peace. And so, what Mormon does here is he writes, "They bury their weapons of peace." And what we think happened is he says, "Oh, they're not weapons of peace." So he just continues and says, "Or rather, they buried their weapons of war for peace." And that the reference on that is Alma twenty four, verse nineteen. Another one we read is in Alma two, verse thirty four, where Mormon writes, "And thus he cleared the ground, or rather the bank." which was on the west of the river Sidon, throwing the bodies of the Lamanites who had been slain into the waters of Sidon. So there, what he means to say is that they cleared the bank, but at first he writes that they cleared the ground. 
Another one of these examples is Mormon's abridgment of Alma the Younger's conversion experience is contained in Alma 36. And when we cover Alma 36, we'll look at it as it's a, it's a beautiful chiastic structure, meaning that it begins and ends using the same phrases and has the same cadence and pace. And it continues to its center point, which is on Christ. Chiasmus was a form of Hebrew literary writing and also a way to remember stories and narratives. And so this is a clearly crafted document. But in Alma 36, verse 14, in Alma's account, we read, Yea, I had murdered many of his children, or rather led them away unto destruction. Yea, and in fine, so great had been my iniquities that the very thought of coming into the presence of my God did rack my soul with inexpressible horror. And so I think what Mormon's doing here is he writes, He's quoting material from Alma, and he writes, I had murdered many of his children, and then, or rather, I had led them away into destruction. To me, this is a sign of editorial working with the text, and clearly Alma hadn't murdered anyone, but it's in there, and then it says, or rather, I had led them unto destruction, however you want to view that. Anyway, that's just an example, but there's a bunch of these throughout the large plates. What I find interesting is there's none of this happening in the small plates, as those were not an abridgment. I really like it as it shows that the Book of Mormon is a historical document and that Mormon is abridging this, that he's editing this information. Okay, now I want to talk a little bit about what we call the Mosiah First Translation. So first of all, know that many readers of the Book of Mormon, they just naturally assume that Joseph Smith translated the books in the order that we find him today. So for example, the assumption is that he starts translating with first Nephi, and then he just goes through to the end. However, uh, the scholarship of many historians have shown us that this probably wasn't the case. As you remember, in July of 1828, the 116 pages are lost. Joseph gives them to Martin Harris, and we know historically that that happened during that time frame. And so in recent decades, scholars like John Welch have determined that Joseph and Oliver picked up translating into the Book of Mosiah, and they worked to the end of the Book of Mormon in Moroni, including the title page, and they finished the translation by translating the books of 1 Nephi through Words of Mormon at the end. And so Joseph is working on the translation in 1828, and he's produced 116 pages of text from the book of Lehi, and he gives them to Martin Harris, who then takes the text to Palmyra on June 14, 1828. By July, Joseph knows that they're lost, and he loses the gift of translation. And so Joseph begins again translating a few words in 1829. Right around February or March, we read this in section 5 of the Doctrine and Covenants, On April 5th, Oliver Cowdery arrives in Harmony, Pennsylvania, and they resume translation on April 7th, 1829. The entire Book of Mormon is finished and completed on June 30th. So you have April, May, and June. You have three months to translate the entire text. Well, what we find interesting is that the application for copyright with the title page, this is filled out on June 11th. And so Guys like John Welch and other scholars have concluded that Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery translate the small plates of Nephi after June 11th. So first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jerem, Omni, are translated from June 11th to June 30th. And so from the words of Mormon, chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, we learn that Mormon added the small plates of Nephi to his text. 
And so this is what Mormon 1 says. He writes in verse 5, Wherefore I chose these things to finish my record upon them, which remainder of my record I shall take from the plates of Nephi. And I cannot write the hundredth part of the things of my people. But behold, I shall take these plates, which contain these prophesyings and revelations, and put them with the remainder of my record. That's Words of Mormon 1 verse 6. These plates is the small plates. The remainder of my record is the large plates. So essentially what Mormon is saying is I'm taking this record, I'm not abridging it, and I'm inserting it into the book. And then in verse 7 he says, he tells us why. He says, I do this for a wise purpose, and thus it whispereth me according to the workings of the Spirit of the Lord which is in me. And now I do not know all things, but the Lord knoweth all things which are to come. Wherefore, he worketh in me to do according to his will. And so Mormon, in my this is like my interpretation of this, Mormon is essentially saying, I'm putting this record in, and I don't know why, but I've been told by the Lord to do it, and so I do. And so from that, we see that more than a thousand years in advance of the loss of the book of Lehi, the Lord had planned for this in advance to compensate for this lost book. Okay, And so what I want to present to you is this idea that the Mosiah first translation by Joseph and Oliver starting in April and translating Mosiah to the end of the Book of Mormon is a fascinating illustration of the authenticity of the text. And there's a lot of reasons why. First, it's important to note, and this is a scholarship by John Welch, and I'll put this also in the show notes. He writes that important ancient documents were doubled and backup copies provided to safeguard against loss or damage. This happened in Nephi's day as well as in the era of Hellenistic Egypt and also the Roman Empire. And John Welch gives a ton of examples that I'm not going to get in here, but you can read them. And he says, even today we see examples of legal documents that are doubled or contracts that have multiple copies. Welch makes the point that to Nephi, his words were legally binding and thus demanded that a second copy be made. He also emphasizes that one copy was usually an abridgment of the longer version. And going along with this logic, it would make sense that Nephi's account on the small plates are going to be a lot shorter. It's going to be an abridgment of the book of Lehi. And so that's what we read in Nephi's account. In keeping with this ancient tradition, the Lord told Nephi from the beginning to keep two sets of records, a historical and a public record on his large plates and a shorter and more spiritually focused record on his small plates. The Lord then inspired Mormon to include the record in with his large plates that we just read in Words of Mormon. When it came time to publish the Book of Mormon, Joseph and Oliver moved the transcription of Nephi's small plates to the beginning of the text where it provided an ideal starting point and replacement for the lost Book of Lehi. This order of translation, which we're going to call the Mosiah First Sequence, actually provides a bunch of fascinating insights concerning the translation process itself, as well as what I like to say is compelling evidence for the Book of Mormon's authenticity. Why is this translation sequence important? Why? That's a great question. To me, it is incredible because all throughout the large plates of Nephi, authors keep referring back to information that is spread all over the place in the small plates of Nephi. The Books of Mormon's Abridgment, which is going to be Alma, Helaman, 3rd, 4th, Nephi, Mormon as well, they continually refer back to the chronologically earlier content that was in the Book of Lehi on the large plates and also on the small plates. And so I want to give a couple examples. I like 1 Nephi 2, verse 20, and it says this, Inasmuch as you keep my commandments, you shall prosper, and you will be led to a land of promise, yea, even a land which I prepared for you, a land which is choice above all other lands. So right there in First Nephi chapter 2 on the small plates, 
we read that they need to be obedient and they'll prosper or not and they'll be cursed. This is also found in 1 Nephi 4, 2 Nephi 1, all throughout the small plates. And it's continually quoted by later authors on the large plates, specifically Mosiah 1.7, Mosiah 2.22. I'll give you a graph. There's a ton of stuff on this. So we'll put that in the show notes as well. This one's good. It talks about the brass plates being preserved. And this is on 1 Nephi 5.18. It says, These plates of brass should go forth to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people who were of his seed. Wherefore, he said, These plates of brass should never perish, neither should they be dimmed any more by time. That's 1 Nephi 5.18 and 19. Later authors on the large plates will continually refer to the brass plates and the importance of them. In Alma 37 Verses 1 through 12, we read a lot about the brass plates, but I want to just draw your attention to verse 3, where it says, These plates of brass, which contain engravings, which have the records of the Holy Scriptures, which have the genealogy of our forefathers, even from the beginning, behold, it has been prophesied by our fathers that they should be kept and handed down from one generation to another, and be kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord until they go forth unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. They shall know of the mysteries contained thereon. And behold, if they are kept, they must retain their brightness. Yea, they will retain their brightness and also all the plates which do contain that which is holy writ. And so a lot of large plates authors are going to refer to many things that are in the small plates. The desirable fruit in the vision of the tree of life is referred to again in Alma 32. That it was sweet and white in 1 Nephi 8.11 is going to be referred to in Alma 32 verse 42. There's references to the iron rod that's only found in the vision in 1 Nephi 8. That's going to be in Helaman 3. So many allusions and illustrations from the small plates are going to be continually repeated throughout the large plates. Now, why is this important? Well, this situation makes complete sense to us if the Book of Mormon is truly what it claims to be. Alma and other later Book of Mormon prophets would have had and known Lehi and Nephi's earlier writings, so they would have referred to and quoted from them. That's back to my comment about what is Scripture, and it's later prophets taking earlier prophecies, recontextualizing them, using them in their narratives to teach about the points that they're trying to make. On the other hand, These references and allusions that are in the large plates are so difficult to explain if Joseph Smith was simply making up the Book of Mormon. Under the theory that Joseph composed rather than translated the text of the Book of Mormon, he would have needed to make detailed references back to passages that he hadn't even created yet. The small plates are translated after June 11th, from June 11th to the end of June, and then it's submitted for publication. Then then we start the printing process. Think about that. If the Book of Mormon references to all the events in the small plates, if those references aren't translations, then Joseph Smith would have to be a genius to create out of his head, out of whole cloth, all these experiences and stories. Just take the Tree of Life, for example. That entire uh, narrative in 1 Nephi 8 and 11 is so rich and so full of symbolism. And that stuff is all over the place in the large plates. And Joseph already has this stuff translated by June 11th. And so I find that fascinating. In other words, this Mosiah first translation, uh, understanding that Mosiah first is translated all the way to Moroni, and then the small plates are translated after June 11th, illustrates that the Book of Mormon is an authentic translation. 
that if Joseph Smith was just creating this out of whole cloth out of his mind, he would have had to have composed the text. He would have needed to make detailed references back to passages that he hadn't translated uh, or created. Not only that, he would have had to create and then remember all these detailed references in a fast-paced translation setting of about eight or nine pages a day without any notes or reference material to aid his memory. And then he would have needed, in composing the small plates last after June 11th, 1829, to the end of the month, he would have had needed to remember accurately and to create the earlier layers of text in 1st Nephi, 2nd Nephi, etc., that later prophets had already referred to and, alert, and alluded to. These findings show that as readers carefully and thoughtfully study the Book of Mormon, they might discover new textual connections and sometimes previously unnoticed and even unexpected evidence that enriches and supports their faith. All throughout the Book of Mormon, we have all these references to the small plates, and I find it fascinating. It leads once again to the illustration of what it means to be scripture, that prophets quote earlier prophets, and they repackage these ideas to teach the important things that they're trying to emphasize to their audience. And we see this today. We see this with modern prophets. Modern prophets read the writings of older prophets, and then they recontextualize them to their audience. Sometimes they don't even have to recontextualize them. They just read the words and then add a second witness to what those prophets have taught long ago. Okay, so what have we done? Well, we've talked about the large plates and the small plates. We've talked about all the different source materials on these two sets of documents. We've talked about how the small plates are not an abridgment. That Mormon, you know, in the fourth century was inspired to take this detailed document totally not abridged, and the Lord said, put this in here. So he did. And then we've seen how that played a role uh, in helping us with the missing stuff that was lost in the 116 pages. One of the things this teaches me is that the Lord is mindful of every people, that he's mindful of this book, that he watched over it. I believe that he also has the power to watch over our lives and that the Lord can and does answer prayers. We talked about not only what was contained on these records, but the complexity of the narrative, how these uh, records were put together, who Mormon was, and why his understanding of language, at least from a scholarship standpoint, is so vital for his ability to be an abridger. But he also had to be inspired. Uh, We talked a little bit about the Mosiah first translation process, that by Mosiah being translated first when Oliver meets Joseph, it matches with history. It also matches with the events that we read. So for example, in May, when they go and pray about priesthood and they get the authority to baptize, Joseph and Oliver are translating third Nephi. They're done by June 11th with uh, Moroni in the title page. And then after June 11th, they go and they do first and second books of Nephi, Jacob, Enos, Jeremiah. And then when they're finished, they submit it to the publisher to be printed. We could talk a lot about the printing process. There have been books written about this. I have a friend, John Peterson, who went to the New York Public Library and actually has sent me pictures of John Gilbert's a letter concerning the typesetting of the Book of Mormon. John Gilbert was the typesetter at the E.B. Grant and Print Shop, and I'll put this in the show notes as well, that uh, John Gilbert writes that the entire text of the Book of Mormon, the entire printer's manuscript that was brought to them, contained no punctuation. And I find that fascinating as uh, Semitic languages, no punctuation in the text. And so uh, John Gilbert says essentially that what they had to do as they set the type is they had to put in the punctuation of the text of the Book of Mormon. And so there's just little things all throughout the history of 
the translation process and the publication process and little breadcrumbs throughout the text of the Book of Mormon showing both its complexity, its layered nuances, as well as demonstrating for us that scripture is something that involves human hands. That Mormon was a genuine prophet, but he was using the tools of scholarship to produce this text. And it's also, and we haven't even touched on this, but the Book of Mormon is riddled with fingerprints of antiquity as far as the way that the words are crafted and the different patterns and techniques that the people of the 7th century BC, the way that they wrote sacred literature, all these Hebraisms, as it were, that the Book of Mormon is filled with these. And we haven't even touched on that today, but we've just kind of talked about the the uh, overall structure. And so it's my testimony that the Book of Mormon is what it purports to be. It's a record that's really, really old, and that Mormon was a guy, a prophet. He was a man who put these texts together. He was inspired of God. He also used the tools at his disposal, and he was super busy. And so while he's doing this and while he's inspired, the text has fingerprints of Mormon throughout where he's kind of busy. And so he's like, I've got to, maybe I've got to change this. And so he writes, or rather all the time, he'll say something, he'll say, oh, or rather I'm going to say it this way. And you'll note that in this podcast, I mess up a lot of times and I'm trying to teach true principles, but as I'm speaking, mistakes are made. So that's scripture. And that's my testimony. I, I thank you for listening today. If you like this video, be sure to subscribe. And if you haven't already, go check out our YouTube channel called Talking Scripture. On that channel, Bryce and I have been working on some new video content. These new videos are in addition to the regular podcasts that Bryce and I do together and supplements to your Come Follow Me study. And we'll leave a link in the description. Once again, thanks for joining us and make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.